Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover and to our final episode about Shakespeare's great play Macbeth and the remarkable 2015 film version of the story by Justin Curzel. If we go back for a moment to the battle scene at the beginning of the film, you will have noticed that the camera lingers during that scene on a particular young lad. And since we had earlier seen the Macbeth's young son lying dead, it's easy to imagine that this young soldier could have been Macbeth's son had that boy reached the age of 17 or so. Before the battle, when the soldiers are preparing Macbeth applies paint to this young man's face. But we can feel the fear that hangs over this lad like a heavy cloak, a sense of impending doom. And sure enough, during the battle, his throat is cut. We are reminded that the Macbeths will never found a dynasty. They will make themselves barren and cursed, Indeed, their heads will end up on public display on poles in the street, just like the heads of the ringleaders of the gunpowder plot. When victory is achieved on the battlefield, Macbeth heads homewards, followed by the king. We've already glimpsed Lady Macbeth at the very beginning when she was burying her son. Now we see her receiving the letter that contains news both of her husband's military victory as well as details of the prophecies made by the weird sisters. She is wearing an expensive dress. Her hair is elaborately braided. She seems to be making a conscious effort to move past her sorrow and assume a formal, serene look in keeping with her status as the wife of a thane. But to me, that braided hair is a lie. It looks like an elegant disguise. It papers over the cracks as her vehement reaction to the letter shows. Underneath, her sorrow continues to flow hot and bitter, undermining everything within. A line comes to my mind from Hamlet, the closet scene in Act 3, Scene 4, when Hamlet is speaking to his mother and he talks about corruption mining all within. Mining, as Hamlet uses it here, is of course undermine in modern English. And Gozell shows us that with Lady Macbeth, grief has turned septic. It has turned to corruption, infecting and undermining everything within. The other line that comes to mind for me as I watch Lady Macbeth in this scene 
is a very powerful line from King Lear, spoken by Lear himself. But I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scold like molten lead. That's a wonderful verb, to scold. It seems to me that as Lady Macbeth reads the prophecies, her pain scalds her anew, and she sets her face resolutely towards violence, murder, and a total rejection of all maternal feeling. It's quite Freudian, in fact. Unsex me here, she says. And fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. Come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers. Come, thick night, and pull thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry. Hold. Hold. Curzel surfs on this idea that for her, the murder of Duncan is, in one sense, a violent compensation mechanism for the loss of of her child. Thinking of her husband, she says, I be either, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round. This is hot and scalding speech. Come here quickly, she says, so I can talk to you and toughen you up with my strong words. I want to remove everything that prevents you, my husband, from attaining the golden round. What is this golden round? Well, in the most obvious sense, it is the crown made of gold, which encircles the head of a king. In another sense, the golden round is an image of harmony, the perfect glittering circle in some sense, a family circle. But in this world of betrayal, where oaths of allegiance are not to be believed, where disease tears families apart, the Macbeth future has already been buried. Bitterness courses through Lady Macbeth's veins like molten lead, and Duncan will die for it. Now, in Shakespeare's play, the murder of Duncan occurs off stage, But in the Curzel film, we see it in all its gruesome reality. It's a brilliant, horribly realistic scene. Macbeth enters, goes up to the bed of the king, stands there calmly. The king is between sleep and and wake, and as his eyelids begin to flutter, Macbeth looks at him coldly, implacably. He puts his hand over his mouth, and as Duncan's eyes begin to widen in alarm, 
And in the first of three key dagger moments in this film, Macbeth places the tip of his dagger on Duncan's abdomen and then slowly but forcefully and deliberately pushes it deep into the flesh. Duncan writhes and struggles. Macbeth's face becomes distorted, blood spurts. It takes quite some time for the king to die. As Lady Macbeth says later in the play, but who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? Once Duncan is dead, Macbeth does not immediately exit with the daggers, not at all. First, he lies beside Duncan on the bed, as though absorbing the enormity of his act. And then he sits on the floor beside the bed, beside the body, calm, silent, brooding, waiting for someone to enter. The person who enters is Malcolm, the king's son and heir the person who by rights should be anointed the next king of Scotland. Indeed, at the banquet earlier that same evening, his father had announced publicly that Malcolm was his chosen heir. Now, sitting glassy-eyed on the floor, Macbeth says to Malcolm... The spring, the head, the fountain of your blood is stopped. The very source of it is stopped. The words are calm. They admit of no rejoinder. Apart from the guards who are sleeping off their drunkenness and whose throats will soon be cut, Nobody else is there. It is just Macbeth and Malcolm in the dead of night with the dead body of the king beside them. Curzel reorders the lines a little so that as the horrified Malcolm takes in the scene, Macbeth gets slowly to his feet and approaches Malcolm using words of regret, saying, The wane of life is drawn. And the mere lease is left this vault to brag of. That line, in fact, describes his own situation. With this act, the wine of Macbeth's Life has been drunk, and the rest of the play will simply see him and his wife drink the dregs or lees. As Macbeth comes face to face with Malcolm, he raises his dagger and places the point of it against Malcolm's cheek, saying a line that he had spoken to the weird sisters. Live you, or are you aught? That man may question. The threat to Malcolm is chillingly clear. 
Malcolm nervously inclines his cheek away from the blade and backs out from the tent. Without speaking to anybody at all, he instantly goes to saddle up his horse and flee the scene. This chilling scene is carried superbly by the two actors. Malcolm's tears, his fear, and the calm, nihilistic clarity with which Macbeth embraces his deed. Macbeth has killed a king whom he knows to be good. Now, like Claudius in Hamlet, he will be led from crime to crime in the attempt to achieve security. A little later, after the murderers have killed Banquo, but Fleance has escaped, we see Macbeth and Lady Macbeth together in another extraordinary scene, equivalent to Shakespeare's Act 3, Scene 4. Sitting on the floor in a high-ceilinged room that seems to serve as a kind of centre of operations, but which also accentuates the growing loneliness of the principal. Macbeth is consumed with self-mocking regret at the idea that he has been unable to stamp out the Banquo line. He is pensive, he is in an ironic sardonic frame of mind, regret gnaws at him. And then there is a second crucial dagger moment in a gesture which seems to express the barrenness that is now lapping around his relationship with his wife. He prods at his wife's stomach, at her womb with his dagger, as though mocking the two of them for their infertility. They have been incapable of nurturing children. They are incapable of seeding a line of kings. Why have I performed these murders? Macbeth asks his wife. If it is only to make the heirs of Banquo kings, for the sake of Banquo, I have defiled my mind. He reaches under his wife's dress and extends his hand towards her sex, even as he presses the dagger against her stomach. She recoils, uneasy, uncomfortable, and then she leans forward to kiss him, attempting to bridge the gulf that is opening up between them. Macbeth says, Full full of scorpions is my mind. And then he grins in a demoniacal way that, honestly, that's the best adjective I can come up with. Fassbender grins like a madman. It's a yellow, crazed, wide-toothed grin, a grin of despair, of futility, of absurdity. And then a single tear rolls down his cheek. Now, when we come to the 
killing of the Macduff family. Of course, in Shakespeare's play, Macduff's son is stabbed before his mother's eyes. Lady Macduff flees, and there is a stage direction saying, exit Lady Macduff, crying murder, and pursued by the murderers. In the Curzel film, Lady Macduff and her three children are burned to death on a pyre that is set up on the sandy dunes that lie before Macbeth's castle. In fact, the splendid setting for these shots is a castle in Northumberland, about 30 kilometres from the Scottish border, called Bamberg Castle. And in this scene, it is Macbeth himself who sets fire to the pyre. Absolutely aghast, reduced to silence, petrified, Lady Macbeth can only look on as the Macduff family, the mother and the three children, are burnt alive. And on my bookshelf, I have a copy of the play in French as well as in English. And in it, the French scholar Pierre Léris writes that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, who at first are bound together by sex, by marriage, by willpower and by crime, end up living what he calls des solitudes parallèles. I think that's a marvellous expression. Des solitudes parallèles, in other words, parallel solitudes. This is well captured in the film. By this point, Lady Macbeth has retreated into herself, into her own grief and her own disordered mind. She rides to the wooden chapel where we had seen her earlier in the play, the chapel where, no doubt, the memorial service for her dead child had been read, and there, alone, she tries to wash blood from the daggers. In her imagination, she sees her dead son and she talks to him, telling him, To bed. To bed. There's nothing at the gate. Come. 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 Come, give me your hand. What's done cannot be undone. Too bad. Too bad. And then returning from the chapel, she sees from a distance the weird sisters, and we feel even more strongly the fellowship between them. Again, her lips form the words, to bed, to bed. All she wants now is to lay down this heavy burden of a life without meaning. The same thing happens to her husband in his parallel solitude. He has lost his connection with his son. He has deliberately destroyed his connection with his king. He sent murderers to fell Banquo, the man with whom he had shared all the dangers of a long battle campaign. 
Now his wife is dead, and in his solitude, he criticizes and insults the few people still under his command. When a messenger shows up, he mocks him as a cream-faced loon, an utterly extraordinary Shakespearean epithet. And in fact, he has lost the ability to relate in a natural way to any human being. Nobody feels loyalty to this man walled up in his crimes. Indeed, Macbeth has lost all connection with meaning. For him, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The only thing he has left is his immense physical courage. And in the magnificent final scene of Curzel's film, Macbeth trudges across the battlefield alone, solitary and friendless, hacking at people with his sword until he comes face to face with Macduff. They fight, and Macbeth is able to down his adversary. But Macduff taunts him and defies him. Finally, Macbeth turns back to his assailant, walks up to him, jams his face and his torso against his, and says in a final act of defiance, Leon Macduff, and damned be him, the first cries, hold enough. Tremendous force, Macduff rips his dagger upwards and into the lower stomach. It's a truly memorable scene, like so many scenes in this film. For me, Curzel delivers wonderfully on both the physical and the psychological landscape of this drama. He delivers on the relentlessly isolating logic of the Macbeths plunge into regicide. He delivers on the cruelty of fate, on the power of weird, on the weird sisters. My regret as a Shakespeare lover is the way that sound has been recorded and edited in this film, what is called the audio mix, which to my ear makes many of the speeches unintelligible. As I say, this is a sound mixing issue, but for me, many of Fassbender's speeches are inaudible, forcing me to resort to subtitles. For those of us who treasure Shakespeare's words, this blunting of the poetry is a loss. But that said, the images are truly unforgettable. Mm-hmm. 